All right, welcome to the Golden Age of Serial Murder. This is episode two, The Werewolf and the Vampire. I am our co-host, Simeon Teitelbaum, and my co-host is Toby Olaway. In episode one, The Celluloid Canvas, we took a very small bore approach to telling a massive story, a small bore introduction piece, where we looked at a lesser-known post-war American serial killer, Harvey Glattman, a lesser-known but in many ways a forerunner to the type of criminals that would become endemic in the United States. But in this episode, we're going to zoom out and take a more panoramic historical view of serial killing so we can give you, the audience, a much better sense of where this all comes from and the fact serial killing has always been with humanity. It's always been a part of who we are. And, and it's, it's a part of the stories we tell. And we've told the legends and folklore up to modern horror. And you can find serial killing in these stories and in all of our histories and all of our cultures. It's not new, but what we learn about its history will tell us some, um, something about every single time that it crops up in our culture. Because when it comes down to it, human history is the same. I think we're going to really be getting at the primordial ooze of what a serial killer is in this episode. And to really start, I want to ask Simeon, what is the definition of a serial killer? At its basic level, a serial killer is someone who murders at intervals rather than someone who murders due to a crime of passion or sudden in the moment reaction to being threatened or being greedy or having some other motive that is considered to be comprehensible in this way. It's different also than a, a, a mass killing, like a school shooting. They have very different motivations. Serial killers kill at intervals or following a particular pattern of fantasy that drives them. And at root, serial killers come in many shapes and sizes, but there are very clear patterns to them. At root, the motivation of almost all serial killers is power and control. And this is almost always mediated through a sexual desire. It's and driven by sexual desire, which is uh, as one of this, along with the desire to to feed, desire to procreate is the greatest drive. It's one of the th reasons that they have a very difficult time stopping. The other reason is that they have personality or psychological problems that get in the way. They've always been with us, and, the, and they're, they're, they, uh, the evidence of what they've done has always been with us, but we haven't always understood the motivations, the psychological aspect of it. But we, I think what we've always known is we've always had a sense for, the, for really what the nature, the type of person who would do these things are, what in a, in a sort of a fundamental sense drives them in a fundamental sense who, who they are because human beings have always experienced their environment directly. So if you come about on, upon a mutilated corpse with organs missing or whatever, like you saw with Jack the Ripper in, in 19th century England, you're gonna have a very, powerful reaction to it and you're going to have a real sense for what happened and and even if you don't understand scientifically you will understand on a pretty accurate level uh you know what kind of creature shall we say did this but you won't necessarily understand it as being part of 
the human experience that you would would normally understand. So what pe what people have done is when they've encountered things like this, when they've had people disappear in the woods and just they find remains of a of a eviscerated body, uh, or or they have had evidence of you know a, a, a sexually predatory person. There have been a number of explanations that they have, and usually it comes down to three, which is that it's particularly with an eviscerated corpse that it's an animal that did it, that it is a demon, and perhaps in the form of an animal or possessing a human being. Later on, a kind of a fusion of this, that a human being that, that uh, has become a monster, has become a, a beast. And there's a, lot, and a great deal of folklore that we have come to understand has is very colorful, that is, it basically inspires all Gothic horror novels, modern horror, ancient stories, the Brothers Grimm, all these great old stories come from direct experiences of the wild, untamed world and of acts which we have come to realize were actually, were done not by mythical monsters, but by, we can today say, well, these were superstitious people and they understood everything only in terms of myth. But one thing I'll say about myths is that I don't think they're lies. I think they're collectively sourced reflections on reality. They're, they're, they can be incorrect, but they can also capture something profoundly true. And particularly, I think, with a serial killer, you have, I'd say, two archetypes in folklore, the werewolf and the vampire, the map on very, very neatly to the two basic types of serial killer, if you're going to boil it down, because there, there are different motivations and there are different permutations. But with serial killers, the two basic types are disorganized and organized. And the disorganized is kind of what people mean when they talk about a werewolf, a man beast. And I, the organized, I think, is very similar to what people talk about with a vampire, and specifically with the idea of a vampire in the mold of Dracula or of the Chinese vampires, the Shangxi vampires. They're not necessarily drinking blood, but sapping the life force, the chi of someone, sort of draining, draining uh, the life from someone in a literal or perhaps spiritual sense for their own vitality, for their own gratification. And one of the things is, is that I would extend that to any type of organized predator. You could even say someone I've mentioned, I think in the first episode, I think the greatest villain in literature that I've encountered, Iago from Othello, who is this inscrutable guy, doesn't, you know, who just, who, who ruins people's lives, who drains them of their, of their essence, in a sense, to just, just to feel powerful and, and just to sows chaos for the sake of it. And if you look at the etymology of these ideas, a, a werewolf, the etymology of the, of, of, of the word, basically, if you go to Saxon, is, is, is a man beast. But the term that is often used uh, to describe werewolves is a, a lycanthropy, which is, can refer either to the belief that one is a wolf or black magic that gives you the properties of a wolf. And that comes from lycos, a Greek word for wolf. But if you, if you look at the, the, the etymology for vampire, the, 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 close, the, the, the oldest thing we, that I, I could find was vampire from a Serbian, which is, just means evil. So I think in some ways the, 
vampire is similar to a demon and the, the werewolf is a degenerated beast. And in, in many ways, if you look at, at the different types of serial killers, there's a great deal of overlap. Very few only fit one mold. But when you look at a disorganized killer, you have someone who is out of control, who is driven by impulse or by outer compulsion and does either doesn't know what they're doing or just can't stop or control it. And their crimes are very brutal, but, uh, but not as organized, not as meticulous. Uh, some of them are, are severely schizophrenic or have some other psychotic problem. And I think this maps very clearly onto the werewolf. The word lunatic is derived from Luna, the moon, the belief that if you go under the moon, it will change you into a wolf or will many uh, psychotics uh, long had this belief that if they went under the moon, that would change their properties. And I think one of the really interesting things about when you look at the history of this folklore is it's a way for people to understand their environment, a way for people to understand seemingly incomprehensible acts, uh, very messed up people. But it's also a way that serial killers understood themselves. Before the modern era, before the in invention of the camera and some of these other things that, and, and, and modern science, in, in an age both of superstition and, and myth and, re and uh, religious belief, and, and, and a lack of, of uh, education, a lot of, a lot of people believed those who were psychotic, their brains had to create a narrative to explain why they were that way, particularly if they were violent. And, you know, there's a line in a, uh, in, a in one of those American crime uh, TV series that always stuck with me about a serial killer. And it was saying that he doesn't kill because he believes in Satan. He believes in Satan because he kills. And there's, and, and a lot of killers you'll find, particularly when you look at the late medieval period, when there was more of a focus on this type of person, when they started to realize that human beings and not necessarily animals were committing some of these acts, you, you found that there were a lot of uh, murderers who were highwaymen, lived in the woods, or who lived sometimes in villages who would become utterly lost in these cycles of, kill, of killing, driven by a compulsion. And when they were caught, they were wearing the skin of a wolf. They had come to believe that's who they were, in a sense, degenerated to, to a, a primitive state. And so when you look at what a serial killer is, one way to understand it, or at least to understand part of it, is, is to look at it as human beings as we were before civilization, or human beings degenerated into the bestial component of our personality without the controlling factors of you know, rest social restraint or, or neurological restraint. And, and one thing you'll find with many serial killers is they have head injuries to the damage their frontal lobe. I, I am getting a sense of, and I, as you have explained, of how people perceive, human beings have perceived of serial killers in the past and how serial killers themselves have perceived of their either, um, you know, the, the, the transformation via lycanthropy to a werewolf or sort of organized uh, vampire, you know, just into a sort of evil uh, heuristic. But I, what I'm not getting a sense of is what causes that so the, the there have been many different theories about 
what causes serial killing, but they all see they all seem to come from a number of different places. So the theories around uh, early childhood, including uh, lack of uh, infantile bonding or, or stifling an overprotective formative experience or sexual or physical abuse, rejection, personality disorders, borderline personality disorder, antisocial disorder, or dissociative identity disorder. There does seem to be a stew of different cause, causation or causal links thought by the serial killers themselves and from the, the world that's perceived them, including the perception going back to antiquity that this was caused by some sort of pact with the devil or, or transformation to a werewolf or, or just pure evil. But what yeah. do you think causes this thing? And I think you were, get, you were getting at it um, uh, when you're moving into um, discussions of neurology. So what, what is the, what is the well, cause? I think, I think at base, you have to look, first of all, before you look at all the factors in every individual, because every individual serial killer has their own story, although they can, there's consistent patterns, as we've discovered in modern taxonomy. But I think you have to start with the basics of human nature and human social organization. The first part of it is that nearly every serial killer is male. Women who kill, kill for different motivations. They're not driven in the same way that men are, that, that the male uh, drive, unless they are with a male partner. The basic, I think, when, before you get into early childhood indicators, abuse and neglect, brain damage, the psyche of the individual, the biology, psychology, socialization, that entire process, as they, uh, uh, to quote uh, FBI uh, profiler Jim Clemente, you have to basically look at the human being. And I think if you boil down to the human being, we are violent, loyal, tribal, cooperative. And the thing that is very uncomfortable, I think, about this is that to look at something that you find distasteful an idea or an act, you have to first look at what function it serves. And I'm going to bring up a book that is a foundational, I think, to this podcast, Sons of Cain by Peter Vronsky, which it really, I felt, opened my eyes. This is, there's a lot more theory than fact in this, but I think that these theories, which will present, prevent as theories, which I think, and I think you might too, have, have a, some salience. I think when you look at this, that at base, you have to look at how, at how this has served humanity in the past, because in the earliest days, as is presented in this, in this book, the, the basic idea is that our species was in conflict with other hominid species, specifically the Neanderthals, and they were as strong and as intelligent as we were, and it was a sort of a battle to the death for dominance, and the development of um, the survival of humanity and the development of, 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 of the human species ha at base created a very violent, ruthless creature. That's, that's how we started off as. And, the, and the, the, I think the best explanation uh, to start off is, is that all the things that serial killers do, the, the, the sexual violence attempts at, at ultimate power and control, sometimes these practices such as eating your the the flesh of your uh, of your enemy, or taking trophies, or even the even the use of torture and rape. These these were tactics that we used in a no holds barred battle to the death. And 
over time, since our victory, since the Neanderthal was basically, there's still bits of Neanderthal in our DNA because of that history, but we know Homo sapiens sapiens won. And then ever since then, we've been basically baking those things out of our genome as much as possible, suppressing them, sublimating them, controlling them through you know, millennia of socialization, through the development of our frontal lobes, through all the through through um, better ideas, better practices, and I think a part of what serial killing is, and you see this in the werewolf myth, is degeneration to the previous state, but which can be caused in the lives of individuals or even groups by by something knocking out those advances. And what uh, Dr. Peter Vronsky says in this book is a very provocative statement: is that it's not that serial killers themselves are deviations as, as much as to start off with, is that, is, is that everyone is potentially a serial killer if the wrong things uh, happen. And by that, he doesn't mean that you can be turned, anyone can be turned into a serial killer by their childhood because you have to have the right genetic factors. You have to have certain things converge, very much like if a society goes wrong and becomes depraved or violent, certain things have to converge. But what he means that on the basic human level, we have socialized and developed and, uh, and, and evolved our, our way out of being a species of serial killers, but that every now and then you have individuals where something causes them to revert back to the atavistic past and, and that have their acts of cannibalism and murder or rape are in many ways a wormhole to that past. And it's funny, Jeffrey Dahmer, when asked about cannibalism at one point, uh, Riley said, I should have been born in Aztec. You know, and he was basically saying, because then that might have <laughs> and, uh, and or maybe maybe one of his uh, his ancestors in the, you know, in in you know Central Europe, because because it's there there is there is a comprehensible aspect to this when you look at history. Mm-hmm. If you look at the werewolf myth uh, in, in the um, look at ancient Greece and there's there's uh, lycanthropy comes from lycos uh, meaning wolf, but there's a the king of Arcadia in ancient Greece, a guy named Lycaon. He invited, uh, according to Greek legend, he invited Zeus to a banquet and sacrificed a boy and fed him to Zeus and the guests. And Zeus was so enraged he turned Lycaon into a werewolf. Mm-hmm. And, and, I, and, you know, I think there's, with Greek myths, there's, there's a sort of a story there that, mm-hmm. and it's not the only thing, but there's a moral. What about, because you, 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 you're, you're going into a terrestrial history of, of human beings yeah. and, and the atavistic past, but the, the atavistic past <laughs> only takes us as far back as human beings versus the Neanderthals. But don't you think that that e- that at even at a more fundamental level, reptilian parts of our brains allow for a certain amount of that kind of atavistic violence that perhaps the the sort of more developed higher neural cortex does not allow for? Do, do you don't you think that it goes even further than than this this clash between 
Homo sapiens and, and, and Neanderthal, it's a sort of broader evolutionary. The, well, if you look at the human brain, the lizard part of the brain is the, are the deeper parts of the brain, are the oldest and the least changed. And uh, if you're someone like myself who's had an anxiety disorder, this is something, it's kind of the opposite of, of, of some of the problems that people have with serial killing, but where you have an overactivity in certain areas rather than underactivity. But these, these parts of the brain, and this is where those atavistic impulses are still seated, they haven't changed. What's changed is the frontal parts of our brain have developed a great deal throughout our species history. And that can give you a false impression that that's in control. I mean, I, I, I know some scientists have said that of the philosophers, David Hume is perhaps uh, got it closer in saying that, you know, the, the, the passions will always, you know, drive us even when we think when we think we're, we're our rational minds are in control, but our, but it, it is and it is true that the the deeper parts of our brain do motivate us. But for most people, the 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 frontal cortex does act as an ordering and a breaking mechanism for these impulses. And indeed, if you were to, it's it's been well documented that if someone suffers a head injury to their frontal lobe, just damage to the frontal lobe. In, in the many cases, you'll see them develop, uh, quite suddenly develop sadistic rape fantasies. And this might be someone who has never uh, had uh, antisocial, a display of antisociality, but something has opened that wormhole. And the part of them that's more like you know, a reptile or maybe like say a chimpanzee, vicious and violent, but lacking in, 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 the, in the constraints, uh, and uh, that we have, they may start to um, to manifest that just from that alone. And in in most cases, there's a lot more than that going on. But the the point being is is that before you get into the individual stories, individual factors that that happen in, in the childhood of some of some you know or or in their genes individually, you have to look at at it and, and recognize that. Human beings are violent. This has served a, a, a very important function throughout our history, but that we learned in various points to uh, moderate this. In uh, Sons of Cain, Peter Vronsky says that the impetus for this initially was that we developed something called necrophobia, a fear of the dead. And, and it's interesting, when you look at both the archetypes of the werewolf and the vampire, you see in different ways how this manifests in society, how this message is driven in. And in the case of the werewolf, it's certain acts are forbidden, uh, certain primitive acts, such as eating the dead or having sex with the dead. They are forbidden, you know, uh, and in, in mythology, you become cursed. You turn into an, a beast. Well, you are turned by the will of Zeus or, or, or through some uh, physiological process, you become degraded. And that is, and that race represents how these type of acts are sending you back in the wrong direction towards the time when uh, people were much more bestial than they are today, at least on the surface. And then in the case of the vampire, you have the prohibition against the dead coming back to take the life of the living. The idea that the natural balance is that people only have the life that they have and that to, uh, to return from death is a terrible threat to the natural balance and a terrible crime against life. And so 
in a lot of werewolf uh, legends, such as the, in the, the Egyptian, I'm sorry, not werewolf, a lot of vampire legends or things similar to the vampire legends. You have in, in Egypt or Sumeria, you have spirits who uh, will return from the dead, will leave the tomb. It, unless proper rituals are done, we'll, we'll, we'll drink the blood of the living. Or, in, or, or the Changxi in, in spirits in, in China will uh, return to, to take, they, or they will travel around to take people's life force. So it's not necessarily blood. But I think that, that in part what happened was, is that unlike the Neanderthals, human beings started to change how we treated dead bodies. And that had a profound effect in developing, inculcating restraint and empathy, respect for the old, respect for the weak, and also a level of, I don't know, maybe of sanitation, because eating the dead is very bad. Putting the dead in your drinking water is something that has been done until embarrassingly and until, until fairly recently. And, the, and so the separation between the living and the dead in how we conceived of the world became enforced. And from that, in many ways, a respect for life, because a funeral is not really for the for the dead person. It's it's for it's it's to show reverence for life. We sort of went flipped on a dime from a no holds barred war to beat our enemies to respecting respecting uh, bodies, respecting life by respecting death. And we do that every time we have a major war. In World War II, we did that, and it it it, it can be profoundly traumatic and dissonant experience for society and cause serious problems as we will get into in this podcast series. But at base that you have to understand that these are these are baseline human impulses that have been that have been sublimated and civilized. Um, and but that in some cases, our ancient past and the side of our natures that we would like to externalize to just make it just be monsters, they, they emerge. But I think there is a great deal of truth to the myths that say these, that, 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 that those who perpetrate these crimes are monstrous, that they have crossed some line. They're, they may be of the human race, as we come to know, but they, they, they're, they're not, you, you can make it too abstract. You can remove the profound derangement of what they do. That's where you start with the, with the, the basic humanity, and then you go to, to, to sex, which is that... A lot of this is wrapped up in the male procreative drive, which was essential to our survival, but is also, like all engines of creation, has an incredibly destructive side. And there's a, uh, and also there's evidence that in, in our in our primitive days we fought together, we hunted together, we ate together. Sometimes just ripping when we you do our hunger, ripping apart the the flesh of the quarry. And then, and, and it is believed by some story, anthropological historians, that this was connected to sex acts. That men and women would hunt together, and they would, they would, they, they would feast together, and then they would, they would, then they would procreate on the spot. There's a great passage from uh, Robert Eisler's book, *Man into Wolf: An Anthropological Interpretation of Masochism, Lycanthropy, and Sadism*, which I like to read. He claims that. The idea of the Venus in fur, the erotic image in Western art and literature, derives from this primitive mixture of violence, desire for food, and desire for sex. And here is the, I quote, 
The nude blood-stained maenad or raving woman in her bare lynx or fox pelt, coursing with her furiously excited male partners in the pack of the wild hunter through the primeval forest, vying with them in bloodlust when they came in at the death, and finally assuaging in a wild embrace their common mad excitement after the amophagic orgy feasting on the live, raw, and bloody meat of the quarry. And I think that that is a good illustration of how all these, these fundamental impulses can fuse and how the impulse, and how in some cases, the sight of blood can be sexually arousing. In some cases, that's the explanation. And it also explains why sometimes women are involved in these acts along with their male partners, but very, you know, almost hardly ever by themselves. And why this can be a social pathogen and not just an individual story, not just of the loner in his basement or the, the guy hiding behind his, his social uh, face, that sometimes this is, a, uh, this is a group endeavor. And Simeon, this does rip, a, rip apart the, the, the sort of lonely depiction of the, of the, of the serial killers, uh, as you have quite articulately stated that you know it seems to be a you know a pathogen that it, on some level is an ordinary shadow of, of our of our genetics and um and, and the way human beings have developed but you talk about the, the sexuality and the, and the sexual aspect of this and, and, and you know why it often comes through in, in a very explicitly sexual way but there are, there's also the, the paraphilia aspect you know and yeah. paraphilia is a is a sort of way of, of ga gaining sexual arousal from sort of no, non ordinary uh, sexual means, and men tend to have most of the paraphilias. I mean, paraphilias can be things as you know simple as Tarantino's love of feet and uh, other, other things like that. I don't want to kink shame. People listening to this podcast probably have their own paraphilias that they, you know, they probably wouldn't to um, tell us about. But, but why has these paraphilias become so important to the serial killers? Is it why so intrinsic to to, to serial killing? Well, well, I mean, I, I would like to add first that the idea of the loner serial killer is in many ways tied to modern atomized industrial civilization. It's not to say there weren't loner serial killers before, but people lived either in common or they were, you know, hermits living in the woods, or in the case of some that they were aristocrats living in a castle. But it, the, the it, it, serial killing is not divorced from the social and material context of their time. They, they are very much illustrative of that, even if they've always been with us in some form or another. As far as the, the sexual aspect of it, it is. Sex, the sex drive is one of the strongest drives. And it's worth observing that particularly when you look at disorganized killers, there's a small subset who are severely schizophrenic. Uh, it's an overrepresented in, in popular culture, actually. But they are motivated sometimes by a psychotic belief that may not be sexual, uh, it may be, for instance, a belief as Richard Chase of the Vampire Sacramento in the 1950s had that Nazis and aliens were taking his blood so he had to constantly drink blood and it led him to kill animals and eventually people. But even in his case, that he had some strange sexual paraphilias tied into that. In almost every case, 
no matter how organized or disorganized, there is a sexual drive to it, but it's not at base sexual. It's at base a desire for power and control. And what it provides, it, it does provide sexual release and sexual gratification for nearly every killer. But at a deeper level, it provides, I think, a sense of godlike power. And in, in, in some periods, it was also attached to, to black magic. And, and what black magic essentially is power through the exercise of will, manipulation of, of certain things through the exercise of will. That's the basic idea of it. And so in many ways, that was one way of understanding that. In terms of the, 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 the sexual aspect, it is more tied into the individual psyche. But as I said, if you have an injury to your frontal lobe, then you are going to very possibly that that wormhole to 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 your more uh, primitive side, your more atavistic side, is going to be open. It doesn't require a great deal for that to happen. With and also another thing is men have considerably less gray matter than women in the brain, so that women naturally have a greater capacity for restraint, and men have a greater drive with our uh, evolutionary procreative imperatives to to do whatever we can and um we can go into this as the series goes on but there are many theories for how for how and why someone's sexuality as they develop becomes goes a little bit off course and and becomes driven into paraphilias in in some case with paraphilias they're just a preferred way of arousal or or, or a fantasy or or something that is can be part of a normal relationship. And so, but in some cases, it's the only way that they can be uh, gratified sexually. And in, and in many cases, as you'll see with some murderers, this has a profoundly, a, it's a profound injury to the ego because many people who become serial killers, particularly the ones who are built le less crazy, they're narcissists and they, and, they, and they like to think of themselves as, as the alphas. And yet, their sexuality doesn't work the way they want it to, or their or or it's it gets linked into a desire for to punish uh, people who have who wronged them or to or or to get back at how they were treated. What it is is that if you look at at at, uh, at human history and folklore, it, what you have is usually you have someone who starts off as human. And who degenerates into the beast, or like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, flips between those things and chooses to to um, go down the path of the forbidden pleasures. In the case of that of that novel, you have someone who is a, a rational man who chooses to be irrational just to see what it's like and gets lost in that. And that's the kind of the degenerative path that can happen. And with sexuality, it is like a drug in the sense that the demands to be satisfied when you're on that runaway train get stronger and stronger and stronger. And so more extreme acts or more common acts are required. And even someone who starts off as a very organized killer can in time devolve, can, be, can degenerate into a beast. I don't wanna create the impression that there is a clear binary between organized and disorganized. And it's, it's rare. You really only have severe psychotics who are entirely disorganized or some extremely calculating 
very usually very intelligent, very reptilian, but normal seeming individuals who are who you know who epitomize the 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 fully organized killer and don't devolve. But in general, whenever you have something that it it becomes it's not a normal track, it becomes a a runaway train, and eventually the man becomes the beast because they totally become controlled by these desires and so in many ways the 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 myth of the werewolf is is exemplified by any 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 uh and you see this sometimes even in descriptions of of drug addicts you know line i heard about uh you know uh once a man by and by a fool and presently a beast and but that has nothing on 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 serial killers that's that's a that is a a, a, a totally different thing, um, but in general, when you when you look at the, the the killers that people assumed must be werewolves, must be some sort of bestial, they they left very gruesome crime scenes and the and and crime scenes that were like animals, and this does tell you something. It tells you that whatever the motivation that whoever did this crime, assuming they were a person, and sometimes. It, Sometimes, sometimes there were packs of animals that this person has become, truthfully, become something like a, a, a fusion of man and beast. There does seem to be not that much of a record of, I mean, many people used to think that there wasn't much of a record of serial killing going before the 1960s and maybe possibly before Jack the Ripper, but obviously there, there, there were. But there doesn't seem to be that much of a record of serial killing until the 1400s. Now, this isn't because serial killing didn't exist, but there just aren't that many records of, of serial killing happening. And now there were as, as many as 300 serial killers uh, put on trial in Europe between 1450 and 1650. Almost certainly there were, there were more, and there, almost certainly there were more cases, but these are the cases that we have and often the serial killers, as you have said, were, were tried with accusations of being werewolves or lycanthropy. And, you know, it's, it's believed that there are three types of werewolf cases, false or lycanthropy daughter cases or legitimate werewolf cases and uh, theriomorphism. Werewolves have been observed since, since ancient times. And uh, and obviously, as you as you stated, what the the werewolf tales and uh, etymology goes back all the way to to Greece. And, uh, but stories about werewolves were commonly believed uh, during the Middle Ages in in Europe. Um, there is there is some information that that states that as far back as Charlemagne, the idea of being a werewolf or the idea of lycanthropy was observed as false. There were rules and laws brought in to stop the, the teaching of that lycanthropy was in fact a real thing. And the, the clerical orders began slowly to develop a sense that these actually weren't werewolves. These were, these were people and sort of that, that there's this constant tension in this time between this fantasy world and then, you know, the world of empirical observable fact, but in the, wider world in the world of the courts in the world of the the peasants 
sheep herders. It was believed that men became werewolves and and once they perform these criminal acts, they were performing these acts as a kind of demonic divination of a, of a werewolf. And there are many werewolf uh, cases. So could, could you elaborate on this this view of lycanthropy in the Middle Ages? Yeah, well, I mean, one of the things is it's similar to, there's a misconception people have about the history of Christendom that there's always been this persecution of witches and werewolves, where for most of it, the belief was that not only is this not real, but that the persecution of of such individuals is the is the problem, is a malignancy for society. It's it's evil. It's it, it requires killing and torturing people. It requires believing in superstition that was wrong. And most of the history of uh, of the Christian Church that has been the case. What you have in this period is more a a political phenomenon. But I also want to emphasize that there were also things going on that were real. There were lots of people that would go missing and their bodies would be found ravaged and certain body parts were missing. Sometimes there were also complicating this. When you look at, say, the the late medieval period, and, and, and I think we're going to be talking especially about France and Germany, a lot of primeval forest land at this time, a lot of people living near there. We think of France as, you know, in the popular imagination, Paris, cosmopolitan, you know, but of course, France is an enormous country. It's very rural. The borders uh, back then, Germany was not unified, you know, the, the, you know, the Holy Roman Empire, you know, the Holy Roman Empire at one point, but you have various uh, provinces. It's a, it's a different world. And there were actually pack, quite a few sightings of packs of wolves real packs of wolves that would rampage around and do stuff. But sometimes in some of these cases, the, the head of the pack, they couldn't tell if it was a real wolf. If there was a thought, it would be a demon. There was a lot of, there's a clash between observable reality and things that were actually happening, people who were being killed and mutilated. And, and also some cases, and I'm going to bring up one who we haven't really talked much of, and we won't talk too much, but there's a guy named Peter Nears. And he was the head of a group of bandits very vicious uh, killer, and they and and they killed hundreds of people. And when he was caught, uh, they found in a, 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 a knapsack he carried dried fetuses and other body parts, which it was known were used in black magic rituals. It doesn't mean that those were necessarily effective, but the belief in such things, in part, created attempts to 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 make use of them. There was a there was throughout the Middle Ages. You know, a tradition of folk magic for the pre-Christian, you know, pre-Christian times, but it was it was tolerated. It was not considered harmful at, in, in the high Middle Ages. But in the late Middle Ages, you have both a uh, political hysteria, politically driven hysteria about these things, but also people who, because it was believed at that time that those things were effective or or dangerous that those who were inclined to be effective or dangerous might have tried to do that too. So it wasn't that there's no record of this. Just like, you know, in the ancient world, it, it, you know, there were serial killers. It's been recorded Caligula, you know, not surprisingly, he would at night go and, and hunt around the, the, the and, and kill people. When of course he didn't need to, he was the emperor of Rome, he could do that publicly, but it didn't have the same wild thrill, I guess, 
there, there there's records of uh, Chinese nobles, can, you know, going around doing that as well in the in 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 in, in, in essentially the antiquity period. Um, but in the late medieval period, you have this, you have something where you have a huge explosion, specifically of werewolf cases, where you have the interaction between the desire to find and identify them, which is politically driven, in part because you had an incredible amount of political instability in these countries and, and amongst the church. This is, this is shortly before you would have civil wars between Protestants and Catholics. You have the publication of the Gutenberg Bible. You have suddenly pamphlets everywhere. And some of these pamphlets were telling people that they had to go find werewolves, they had to go find witches, they had to do that stuff. That's something we're going to get into more and more is the effects of this on society. But outside of society, there's this thought that there were, there were very, uh, very dangerous people who were conducting black magic rituals or who had been turned into wolves by either the devil or some other or some natural contamination and or as you find in some folklore like the you know navajo folklore the skinwalkers folklore throughout the world you have the idea of evil spirits manifesting in the forms of animals or taking like like you like the the in kenya the 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 man eaters of savo or these these lions that went on a rampage and was believed by some locally they were evil spirits. Uh, France was particularly thought to be infested with werewolves during the, the 16th uh, century in the, in the early modern period. It was suggested that France was afflicted with an, an epidemic of werewolves. The years between 1520 and 1630 constitute a peak period for werewolf sightings with over 30,000 recorded cases in France. That's a political and social panic. Yeah, a, a study of French werewolves noted that numerous werewolf cases were heard in the courts involving murder and cannibalism. Several were convicted of murdering small ch children and ingesting them of some, some of their flesh at the time, according to advertisements uh, to the sovereign courts in Parliament at Dole and in uh, several other territories. Werewolf sightings were, were often involving uh, several little children. Uh, the killing of several little children, and um, and this was considered to be a an epidemic in 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 France in 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 this period. There was a need to explain a lot of things, and also a need to unify people who were being, in fear, would be prone to disunity due to the sudden proliferation of of of, of pamphlets after the printing press. And you know, one way to really unite people is. A common enemy, a common fear, and and there was and there was some reality to it. As I said, there were people who were being killed by what we found that we we've, we've discovered later were most often organized serial killers. On occasion, you know. So, but there was a need to to um, to to unify the people and to achieve a, vi a victory, at least a perceived need upon political leaders and politically minded uh, clerisy you know, members of the church, contravening the history of theology and, 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 and what most scholars and uh, medical people believed, but it was based, I think, on a desire more to unify against a common enemy and to cleanse the body politic of some sort of, some sort of uh, specter of contagion by the devil. And, and so what you end up having is you have what were probably a, a, a inordinate number of killers who um, I, who 
who uh, whose actions were wolf-like, were, were uh, brutal and disorganized. And in some cases, the killers were found wearing wearing the, the, the fur of a wolf, uh, in many ways echoing their, their, uh, their ancient ancestors. But in nearly every case, you also have confections, confessions extracted under incredible torture. You have common stories which could uh, evidence something real, but also could just be what the authorities wanted to hear. You often have this idea of, kind of like in the Salem witch trials many centuries later, of meeting the devil in the forest and he gives you some talisman of his of, uh, of power and and that allows you to become a wolf or conduct these magic rituals and that's giving the authorities what they want that's giving them not just the examples of 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 uh, werewolves but but the 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 monolithic uh, threat that the, the idea that there's so many of these 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 people so it's it's very difficult to separate Back from from uh, fiction in this, because there were a lot of people getting killed savagely, in what we now realize were probably serial killers. But we, but the the amount of reports, the amount of confessions, it 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 all builds on itself and becomes a social and uh, political hysteria. So it's it's it, it it when you look at late at 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 late medieval France and Germany as well, uh, what you have is a is is a fair bit of reality that gets that gets spun into this terrible giant narrative that that builds on itself and 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 for a time burns out of control. And so when you look at a lot of these cases, you have to look at it in terms of the human pathology we've talked about and the individual pathology. But also you have to look at it and say, well, these are mostly people who were crazy or very poor outside of society, easy to externalize. Because the, the important thing to, to note when you're talking about the, this, uh, people who could be associated with this kind of folklore, with the, with the werewolf, the vampire, the witch, the, uh, the, the warlock, these are figures, what, you know, what I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing this correctly, I'm, I don't speak French, but what uh, Georges Bataille, is that correctly? But he calls the sacred monster, the externalized, monster that's outside of humanity the that the, the, these are these are figures that are not us they're not a part of society they can be utterly exterminated for, you know like a virus and this isn't this isn't in some cases these are people who were a part of society but in general this is a this is evidence of a political and um a political and social hysteria. So we have to look at that too. That's part of the story of serial killing. It's not just the killers themselves, but how society deals with them in effective and also sometimes horribly ineffective ways. And in every case, you do have the presence of confessions extracted, in nearly every case, confessions extracted by torture. So you have to you have to take it all with a grain of salt and sometimes realize that in the pursuit of the monstrous, certainly human beings can become even more monstrous, you know, when trying to, when trying to purge society of these types of people. Even in this uh, pamphlet from the 1580s, there's an emphasis on the contradistinction because they emphasize the fact that we are good abiding people dwelling in the area and we're asking the courts and the, and the sovereign to be able to go there with our pickaxes and, 
and go there with our torches and then get rid of this kind of outside enemy in agents and i and i th do think that there, there was a sense that you know whether you're talking about witches in this period or werewolves in this period there is an emphasis on trying to prosecute uh marginalized uh people in the community some of them were in fact werewolves and murderers but others weren't uh there's an intense uh, witch trials um that you know they go go on in this period as well born out of this kind of uh social hysteria about the epidemic of werewolves there's all there's also you know a sort of aside but it's it, it speaks to the to the epidemic of the time which is a feeling of you know werewolves becoming more sort of uh sexualized characters more uh the, the loneliness transforms into kind of like gothic romantic loneliness and and uh and women engage in a kind of pop culture uh, around lycanthropy as well so just just to show you the intensity of the of that uh, culture at the time i was kind of surprised when i read about that because you know normally we think today the vampire has become that figure like in Anne rice's uh, vampire novels i read one of them There's a, that, that doomed the doomed loner that uh, in, in in french chivalric romance that was once the werewolf and i think what it reflects is and you see this in all manner of stories throughout the centuries you know up to and including uh twilight doesn't have an actual well we won't get into that uh, <laughs> but that i think part of it does reflect the kind of like the beauty and the beast motif it, it, there's something enticing about a man who is a little bit more of a beast particularly if 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 the relationship with the woman gives her a sense that she is kind of um, ha, ha, can have a bit of a taste of that while also being able to civilize or control. And in, in one of those stories, sometimes the woman had control about wh or whether they could morph back in, from, be, be, from wolf into man, kind of like if the princess could decide whether the frog becomes, the, when the frog becomes the prince, not just, not just, so, so there, so it, it it's, that there's a there is that and whenever whenever you have this type of there's always a side aspect to the danger where there's the, the sense of the forbidden particularly when when the danger goes along with aspects of repression there's in folk music there's all these songs warning about the charming stranger who comes into town and 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 there's often a very very serious dark side to that the original version of uh little red riding hood brothers grim not what we know it's a uh, it's basically a woman who is basically like a prostitute who offers herself to the wolf, expecting that you know, and it is torn to pieces. Basically, I mean, it 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 it's kind of a a metaphor for the kinds of the kinds of silling that we will see later. There's, and I'm sure it came out of some aspect of reality, but that's more what you see in societies in which prostitution had a more of a mediating effect. In 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 France at the time. A lot of these killers, they they killed entire families, they killed children, and they 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 ripped fetuses out of wombs. They they were kind of waging war on the or seemed to be waging war on the entire society. There wasn't necessarily in that time the combination of atomization and repression that you see in Victorian England. You see in in some ways in in, in modernity. It was the medieval period in some ways is very extreme, but also in some ways. Uh, fairly free for most people. 
a lot of medieval stories we see are about nobles and noble women who get married off and they don't have any control. But often village life was a, was 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 even was a little bit more freewheeling, and it wasn't necessarily sexuality wasn't mediated by uh, through prostitution as much as it would be in later centuries. So it has, that's less of an issue. It is is whatever the, the 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 conditions of the time tell you a lot about who the victims are. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think. Um... But then again, I think the 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 two types of killers emerge again because you don't just have a marginalized killer that that exists on the outskirts of society. Um, you also have the the killer that is part of the society that is uh, socialized at least on the surface level as part of the society. The, the the builder the laborer the the candlestick maker and even the aristocrats as well uh, not just the Caligula type but uh, someone who's well born who takes advantages of particular power dynamics and, and situations so you, you have the the whole gamut of serial killers in the in this period but again yeah, you, you certainly do and I think I think you can look at it let's let's take the the start with the extreme case where you, where you have let's say you have a traveling peasant or itinerant worker or a hermit who is either you know maybe intellectually stunted or or psychotic or combination of the two and you know someone maybe a little bit like uh jacques roulet uh in in 1598 he he was um uh caught after um murdering and cannibalizing a a, a 15 year old boy and confessed to uh, doing so with a series of adults and, and children, and he and and he claimed to have transformed into a werewolf. But he was, was um, he did plead insanity. You have someone who is more the the out the more the the outsider, someone who probably had uh, profound deficits that that maybe made them more um, susceptible to to going down this road. Because it isn't just brain damage. You, you see sometimes with these disorganized purely disorganized killers that they might have an IQ of 50 to 60. They might, they, they, they ter maybe terrible impoverishment. There's most people very poor at this time. And, that, and that's certainly someone who is, is, uh, is going to be more along that side. And then in, in sometimes you have, in the, you have others who, who, are, who have some social standing. They might have a family. They might be part of the society, but they're a little bit off. You know, someone like uh, Gil Garnier, who was discovered uh, wearing a, um, he, he murdered a young girl and he killed and ate her Fence and, and carried some food, uh, some of the, the body of the girl to his wife. And when you see in some of these cases, you see people who, where their whole family has kind of become a part of this. And I think in some ways that kind of story inspires what we think of as something like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, very iconic horror movie where you have people who are relatively like us on the surface, but they've lost touch. And they might even live in a family situation, not too far from everyone else, but they've, they've lost touch with civilization and reverted to, back to some atavistic state. And, and I think it's worth noting that throughout this period and the period before and the period after, 
you have so many, just like you have the same, the ancient folklore that informs our views, you have a lot of, you have gothic horror, the Brothers Grimm, you have, you have horror movies. Have, there's been an indelible mark on our, on our culture in those forms through these types of cases. I think partly because of the social hysteria, but also because there's something very, people are afraid of people who become crazy. You think of The Shining, the idea of someone totally losing their marbles or their control or their humanity is, is deeply frightening. And this can happen in the context of families. To make a small note of a case that I think influenced modern culture as well, um, in, in medieval Scotland, Sonny Bean was a guy who led a, a large, an entire clan that lived out in the middle of nowhere and was inbred and waylaid maybe up to a thousand people over several decades and killed and ate them. That inspired the movie The Hills Have Eyes, if anyone has, has seen either version of that, pretty nasty movies. But they were um, hunted, King James sent, um, basically sent the army after them and took them and, you know, executed them horribly, every single one of them. And I think in many ways that set the template for what was done in medieval France, because the idea was you have to, this is a, this is a disease uh, that has to be wiped out or it'll, it'll spread. Also, I think in many ways it came out of the experience of the Black Death, which, which you know, Back in those days, people might not know that understand the difference between, say, something that causes people to 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 die from a, a virus and to cause someone like Gil Garnier and his family to become cannibals. So, so some the idea is you have to, through the most extreme means, get rid of that. And, and then in some cases, and and I think probably the most infamous case of this period is a man named Peter Stuba or Stump. There's lots of different names. He, he was German. I think it was in the Cologne region of Germany. And he, unlike some of these others, his, he, the record of his crimes paints a picture of a man as deranged as any who's ever lived. But he was a fairly successful farmer who dressed reasonably well, who was known in the area, who would greet people. Yeah, so exactly. We, we have all of these different examples, but I think we should start with Gilles de Ray, who was a, a French war hero at the time. His crimes are known for he kidnapped his wife and her uncle and a couple others. Several of the party died in de Ray's dungeon. He reportedly kidnapped Jean Le Ferron and a very bizarre allegation. He was accused of abducting a pregnant woman, killing her and then tearing the fetus from the womb and raping it. Uh, the several heads of children were, were prepared for pageants. He often employed a woman to curl the, the children's hair and apply makeup to their faces. The heads were then affixed to poles or rods and, and appreciated DeRay and his entourage displayed several heads of these children in order for them to decide which was the fairest. The winning head was subsequently used for the evening's uh, sexual uh, gratification. And, and again, you know, as you have these these mix of uh, social standings. DeRay was, uh, he was an aristocrat. The boys were raised in a formal aristocratic French child rearing system of the day, posited that children should be treated like young adults until the age of seven, the, the legal age of reason. Jill barely saw his parents. Uh, things kind of changed for the worst, considered um, between the ages of of about 11 and, and 20, because the records are a little model of this, uh, his parents 
died and and um, him and his brother were left to their own uh, devices for, for a lot of the time but uh, he lived as a French nobleman uh, something that was that was very significant he was he was very wealthy but he was one of the wealthiest nobles in Europe he inherited 15 princely domains of huge estates throughout the Lorry Valley. Ray was heir to the largest French fortune of the time. He was frequently called the richest man in France. Yeah, he, he certainly was at one point. The, the difference, uh, DeRay was uh, considered to be a very good look, uh, man. His appearance fascinated many people. He had a bluish uh, black beard. He, he was a, a soldier of, of the, the, the first um, standing uh, a knight who was uh, highly revered uh, by, by many of his con- contemporaries. He, he earned a number of uh, significant honors. He received the prestigious designation of the Mastery Chow, one of four soldiers so honored. But perhaps his most impressive military honor was being able named a Marshal of France at the age of merely uh, 25. The, the award signifying the status as France's most distinguished soldier he was also introduced to the, the court of Charles the seventh in 1425 uh, he received a number of other noteworthy honors at the time he was a man in arms who was uh, supported and, and supported Joan of Arc wasn't Those he cav- at one point the, the essentially the commander of her army yeah he, he was the commander of, uh, of her army and perhaps, perhaps he was the most respected man in France. But they say that the myth goes that after the death of Joan of Arc and her betrayal, that he descended into, into madness. You know, they always say, was it the, the line you told as a kid, idleness is the devil's workshop. And certainly the other aspect of it is when you have people who have great wealth and not a whole lot to do and in, in, and basically ultimate power when it comes to their 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 amount of money they have and social standing they have that is a, a that that is very dangerous and the interesting thing about Gil de Rey, i think what makes him such a fascinating figure is such an how it's such an extreme in both directions how he is both one of the truly great heroes of france and yet if the reports are to be believed the most i mean possibly the most prolific serial murder of all time. He is credited with 850 to 1,000 murders, I've read. Now, this is this entire thing is in doubt for reasons that I'll get into in a minute. But the basic charges that I've read is that he is that while he was the wealthiest man in France, he was a profligate spender and he would spend huge amounts of money putting on plays with thousands of people there, hundreds of people in the play, all this stuff basically plays glorifying himself and his, his military exploits and that he was and that this this did increase his popularity because he was feeding people and entertaining people but that it was bankrupting him and that well, apparently he he got interested in alchemy and there is an occult connection to alchemy although not it's not direct the idea of trying to turn things into gold and he would have wanted to have more money and the allegations is that he that he lured boys and from um, the area and sacrifice them in black magic rituals in order to to increase his wealth and power that this started with alchemy and then got out of control 
I think that when you look at Gilderay, one thing you do see is you see all the aspects of what people say, of what attracts people to a charismatic psychopath. I do think that there is enough smoke to believe there's fire to these allegations because there's so many missing kids in, in his domains. Now, that doesn't mean he was responsible for all of them. The accounts that he, uh, that he confessed to, perhaps they're hyperbolic and embellished, but they do, they do are consistent with a lot of predatory murderers in that vein. It is entirely possible that the black magic stuff, as was the case with so many, so many uh, uh, people accused of lycanthropy or witchcraft or anything at the time, that those were exaggerated or made up. There's also the theory that some have that because he was so wealthy and so powerful, as is the case in some other situ similar cases, such as uh, Countess Bathory in Hungary, that it may have been, they may have been the victim of a political conspiracy. But the, the detail of the confessions, the amount of people who were involved externally, I think there's gotta be some truth to it. And I, and I also think that when you look at, you look at him, you see in, in truth, I think what the, what the vampire myth, regardless of how true it is, because we don't know, Gilderay could be, could have, be guilty of over a thousand murders or he could be guilty of very few. We don't know for sure. He certainly displayed the traits that you might associate with a highly organized, uh, uh, you know, uh, psychopathic individual, a fearless dominance, the desire for violence, a desire, the self-aggrandizement and narcissism. Uh, a great uh, amount of personal ambition as well. I mean, compare him to someone like in the modern era, like John Wayne Gacy, who is not mm -hmm. an aristocrat, but who had a similar Style. So I, I, I think I think there is a lot of there's likely some truth to it. And the idea of the vampire, the, of the mythic archetype is not necessarily just of, of someone of a of someone who drinks blood. It's it's the idea of the the uh, socially attractive, uh, impenetrable predator. And particularly one when you think of Gilderay, it fits the idea we most commonly think of a vampire as being, as from Bram Stoker's Dracula. There are other forms like the German Nosferatu that calls back more to the Egyptian, the Ka, the spirits who come out of the tombs, a more twisted creature. But with Dracula, you have a figure, an aristocrat who lives in a castle deep in the woods. And it's nominally based on, you know, the, the Wallachian prince, Vlad Tepish. But in reality, I think it's more a character like Gilderay exemplifies what this myth is really about which is someone who, who preys on the populace, who uses other people as pawns as part of that scheme. You think of Dracula has a guy named Renfield, who's this little, little golem-like creature who does his bidding and you know, brings in people. All these types of guys, one thing they have in common is they, they, they have lackeys who do their bidding, who are part of the scheme, but who are not on equal footing with them. And, and I think what DeRay, what DeRay really embodies is the idea of someone who is socially admired, has qualities which make him very successful in, in a society, and has, is uh, fearless, is dominant, is, a, is drunk on their own power and sense of impotence. And they're not driven necessarily by this insecurity or by madness, but by infinite power.
the infinite ability to take the life from others to increase the power and vitality of their own. That to me is what the vampire myth truly is. And I think Gil Ray in this period, and I also think that he, 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 he sets the template for this type of, uh, for this type of person that you see in later times that you are going to see with the infamous boy murderers of the 1970s in the United States, or that you see sometimes with, uh, not just with gay uh, killers, but with uh, David Parker Ray in New Mexico, who led a, led a satanic cult and a sex trafficker and a torture of women. Uh, Leonard Lake in Northern California, a very similar man who had accomplices, he had a cabin in the woods that, you know, he would take women. You have this idea of someone who is isolated, but powerful. And, and, and able to use others to, uh, to help extract uh, from the surrounding community and suck the life out of everyone. And the other, I think, side of it is, is that these are also people who prey on people emotionally, who prey on their environment, who have no end to their greed and ambition. Their ambition devours, their community devours their country. And and at the very least, the legend of Gil de Rey exemplifies this. I don't know. We don't know if we don't know if how guilty he was of this. We don't know how much of this was a conspiracy, but we do know that if he was suspected in over one thousand murders, had to be a lot of people, a lot of particularly young kids who were uh, in who were who were uh, missing or uh, and otherwise, you know, otherwise otherwise killed because. As we know, you know, peasants were not highly valued. De Ray, he was brought in by the court, so vigorously resisted legal proceedings and denied all charges brought against him. He verbally castigated the commission and refused uh, each of the four times he was asked to respond to allegations by making a plea to the court. But he returned to the court two days later after he refused, uh, tearfully apologizing for his offenses on October 21st, dressed entirely in white, he admitted everything. He confessed to the father superior of the murders and later to the bishop, uh, Jean Prigant and Pierre Le Hospital. These were approximately 110 witnesses ag- against the, the, the defendant. Uh, the alleged accomplices t- testified for five days against DeRay, the most persuasive evidence that was given by the parents of the boys who had vanished and uh, presumably uh, dead. And uh, because of the evidence give, given, um, DeRay was uh, executed by the, by the, by the courts. Although, of course, as, uh, as has been stated, this is still considered to be not a conclusive uh, trial um, because of other ex- extenu- extenuating circumstances, but because of the extent of the of the witnesses of the DeRay serves as a kind of archetype, an early archetype of the kind of people we'll be talking about. I think uh, it's an es- essential to know and, and, and to understand in the, the history of serial killing. Yeah, I mean, also it is it is worth when you talk about him coming before the courts in that way. It, it it's very reminiscent of the. Uh, of the auto de fe ritual in, the, in Spain during the Inquisition, where you, it, it's the garb of the penitent. And I think either through torture or through some other means, he was, he was convinced to confess. Because certainly in his, his personality, he was, a, he, he was, uh, 
not a um, you know not a, a, a very very narcissistic and and prideful person, but either he was tortured or offered some commuted. I, I I think the execution was that he was hanged and then his body was burned, and certainly as we know at that time, that was a relatively lenient punishment and one that was you were probably more likely to receive if if you were an aristocrat. I mean, certainly if you were convicted of being a black magician, you you were you you know it would usually be worse than that, but but either but I, it it is very difficult at that time to do account for the veracity of any of this stuff it is it is as much a matter of propaganda and a matter of legend but the legend itself is as you say it is something that we see pop up again and again it is like all real myths there is a great deal of truth in it that we see replicated over history and i think we can see when we look at serial killing as a historical phenomenon is proven because it keeps coming back over and over again. And I think an interesting transition point is, and maybe is this the last person we'll look at today, uh, Peter Stuba, that I think he's, that just a brief look, a note on him, he's sort of an interesting bridge between the, the werewolf and the vampire archetype because, and, and I think he's very similar to someone who we will get to in the next episode uh, from uh, Weimar, Germany. Who a man who uh, whose crimes were just incomprehensibly brutal and depraved, but who also had some social standing, as in the case of Garnier and some of these other you know werewolf killers, Peter Strubo confessed under torture that he had been given a girdle uh, by the devil at the age of twelve, and that uh, that had given him the power to turn into a wolf and to assume those qualities, and this was found under torture, of course. But I'm thinking that the truth of the matter is that this was probably around the time where his deviant sexuality blossomed. Probably some truth to what he, he confessed under torture in that he was apparently a man who, uh, from a very early age, was, was violent and deviant. And he killed, um, I think it was 13 people at least, consider, you know, and, uh, you know, certain, and was convicted of some of the same level of crimes that we talked about with DeRay, ripping out fetuses, killing and eating and raping. He, he was convicted of uh, incest in his own family, as was typical for the time when he was executed, his family was executed as well, just to get rid of the contagion. He was someone who's, uh, it's hard to place him on the organized, disorganized, because his, cr his crimes were very typical of the disorganized killer, utterly, you know, brutal and bestial, but his personality was not said to be that of a psychotic. And so I think you see, a, a, you see like many cases, a mixed, most serial killers, you see a, a mix of the werewolf and the vampire. You see a mix of the beast and of the bloodless cunning predator. You don't necessarily just see one or the other. And uh, in the case of Stuba, he was, um, he was executed in a particularly horrible fashion, very much like Peter Neer's He'll be warned, those who are listening, he was uh, broken on the wheel over the course of several days and had flesh ripped from his body and, you know, flayed and burned and all manner of horrible things. And this was done as a way to try to uh, send a message to the populace that, uh, such, that such creatures were to be utterly expelled from society and that such actions, you know, there was no punishment too terrible for them. And it's interesting that if you that apparently Cage 
uh, where his body, the parts of his body were left as a warning to the population, they're still hanging there. There's nothing in them anymore, but hundreds of years, the, they're still hanging as kind of a macabre warning to the people to, to stay in line and to not do that. It's, it's kind of like it harkens back to that story where Zeus curses the king for, for transgressing these, these boundaries. There's still these warnings that you can still see today if you go to the right part of Germany of the, the you know of this history and it leads into i th i think it, you have to take a look at the effects of such violence within society because these are the, when when you look at these mythical figures a lot of the way to understand it is these are monsters and i think they are but it is not just outside of society that they develop it's also uh they can develop within society and they can and and uh, the violent pathology that is deep in all of our brains that is in that manifests in these individuals is something that can be socially inculcated as well as as not just you have these you have the aristocrat alone in his castle with too much money and time or the crazy farmer uh, who you know or shepherd or 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 whatever the the the, the a large way we try to understand these things by externalizing them. And, and making those who, who do the monstrous. And when we do that, it is, it, we do see a truth to it because, because most people are not, most people will never become that version of themselves because of their, their neurology their, their, and, their, and their socialization and because of the choices they make. But it, as we see in Peter Stuba. Peter Stuba, Peter Stuba, a member of the community of Bedburg uh, near Cologne and uh, the people of Bedburg uh, in the 16th century were confronted with terrible problem. Dismembered limbs were found in fields on a regular basis, according to one report. Lengthy series of inexplicable murders were observed. Local residents were regularly finding scattered remains. According to another source, Peter Stuber or some some have called him Peter Stump, whose numerous names yeah. have, have emerged. Uh, he was born in Bedburg, Germany, according to most accounts. Another slight more specific account suggests that he was born in 1525, but all public records of the sort were destroyed during the Thirty Years' War. He was actually was uh, you know, is known as a sadist, had aberrant intimate behavior. He reportedly had a mistress uh, named Catherine Trompin. He lived with her as a concubine. The, the accounts uh, have a sort of a nasty reflection on that. But he, while he was living with her, he, he continued um, his sojourns of, of murder. He reported he reportedly was a succubus, the devil, and um, and he used you know he, he used that for carnal pleasure because of his, his uh, insatiable lust. The final dimension of his uh, sex life uh, should be mentioned that he committed incest with his daughter. Yeah. The, the descriptions of him, uh, the, he had eyes great and large, which in the night sparkled like brands of fire, mouth great and wide with the most sharp and cruel teeth, a huge body and mighty claws. So there's the depiction of the, the werewolf there. It may be an externalization of what his actual personality was like. And sometimes when you see these type of killers, 
there's a look in, I mean, I don't, you can overvalue, you know, an expression in a photograph or something, but when you look at, 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 at a lot of psychopathic killers, either they have this empty dead fish look in the eyes, but in some cases, there's a famous photo of Ted Bundy that's like this. Their eyes glow, do glow. And there's, it's like this, it's like animated by something unnatural because I think it's, it's, they have this incredible focus, almost like a tiger. And they, they have this, and, and they're, they're a one track mind, they're predators. So I think that I, I, it's entirely possible that those who may have seen him, even if they were predisposed to perceive him that way, may have seen something that was real, something that because that it, that it seems in his case, it's less a matter of legend. Even though he was, many confinements were extracted, the particulars under torture, there's a lot of evidence he, he, that he, he did what he, what he did. And you do wonder if those depictions of him were in a sense truthful as to who he was underneath it all. So well considered to be evil, even from uh, youth, many people su- suggested that he was quite malicious youth. Uh, was continually brought up, uh, nourished. Peter Schubert from youth was greatly inclined to evil and the practicing of wicked arts, even from 12 to the age of 20 and so forwards. So much as the you know, damnable desire of magic, necromancy, sorcery, equating himself with eternal spirits and, and fiends. And uh, you know, the, he confessed that at the age of 12, he be- began to practice black magic and engage in, in acts of witchcraft, uh, at the time, so the, again, there's this me- meshing of uh, the the actual acts of uh, killing that he, he he took part in and was a purveyor of, and then the sort of occult sorcery. Yeah, that is both the answer that the authorities wanted, but it also is worth saying that at, at this time, the belief in the power and eff- efficacy of black magic could create its own reality in the sense that that uh, people could, it may well be, as, in, as, as I said, in the case of Peter Nears, a similar man, a little bit earlier in this period in, in Germany, that, ma- that many people may have, because of the time they grew up in, because of their inclinations, have attempted black magic. It may not have all been false confessions, because at the time, it, the, 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 the belief, it's, it is a reciprocal kind of a loop. The belief that werewolves are a threat and a danger and the witches are a threat and a danger can also lead some to try to become werewolves and witches in, in much the same way as the today the, the idea of the serial killer is kind of a pop figure or the spree shooter creates people who want to be the most horrible serial killer or the most prolific spree shooter. So it could be that because of when he grew up that he did try to do black magic because he had a desire for power or maybe he wanted to think he was invisible so he could buy on someone and, and, and attack them. He's very similar from these reports to, to a man in Germany several hundred years later, Peter Curtin, who we'll cover in the next episode, except that they, they lived in different periods and they were perceived differently and perceived themselves differently depending based on when they lived. If Peter Stubb uh, or Stumpf, whoever he was, if he had lived in the 20th century, perhaps he channels those energies into, into other things. Perhaps a black magician of the 15th century becomes a prolific con artist of the 20th century. I think it's interesting when you look at someone like L. Ron Hubbard, the founder of Scientology, he was viewed by those who practiced the occult. He was part of a you know, group of 
these sort of elite cultural figures in California. He was viewed as a black magician. In in this time as well, you know, again, to the, the characterization of the serial killer, you know, although he was perceived as an evil child, he would go through the streets in a comely habit, uh, very civilly, and was well known to all inhabitants. And oftentimes mm-hmm. he was saluted by those whose friends and children he had butchered, but did not suspect him of the same. So there was a development of, you know, the, the, the outward expression of self as a, as a, you know, well-acquainted citizen, not, not an aristocrat, but an ordinary figure who has some status within the world that he's living in, but in, in under cover of night is killing people. And so within the span of a few years, he had murdered 13 young children and two young women pregnant with child. He's known to have teared the children out of their wombs in the most bloody and savage ways. And after ate their hearts, panting hot and raw, which are, which are counted daintily morsels and best agreeing to his appetites. It does sound an awful lot like that, that anecdote I read about the primitive people hunting together, eating the raw organs and then having sex there you know you wonder if this if this was the eating of the organs and the 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 evisceration of the bodies was sexual with him you i would very much suspect that it was and the other aspect of this these very illustrative is the is the psychopathic person is someone who is empty essentially except for their ego and their basic desires because of their lack of inhibition their lack of morals their lack of social connection to others in the normal sense. They're able to be very malleable in how they present themselves. And they're very aware, like a predator is of his environment. If you put a a cat, a cat immediately acclimates the environment and just looks around and and trying to figure out how to hunt. These type of men, uh, almost entirely men, are able to be almost preternaturally observant of their, of their uh, environment over time. They don't have this ability necessarily to start off, but they develop it throughout childhood. They become devious and are able to hide that evil quality to themselves. And so they're able to know how to present themselves to the world. And this makes them especially dangerous because, because people use these visuals, how we see each other as a heuristic to, to, are you a threat? Are you familiar? People who, a man like Ted Bundy, uh, dressed in a way that Moomin thought made, made him look harmless. Peter Stubba or Peter Curtin, they both dressed well. You know, members of society are not going around in rags like some of these other killers at the time, like Dr. Lay. They're, they're able to uh, manipulate their presentation almost infinitely. There's an incredible freedom to that. And it goes along also with the primary desire for control. So if you have, if your desire, your primary desire is control, and you can infinitely control how you present yourself to others. A lot of what I think serial killers love is not just the action, but the game that they play. Their entire, they're playing a game with all of society. And it's very similar to a con artist who is psychologically often very similar to a serial killer, they just don't kill. But they're playing the same game. They're like a vampire, they're they're changing their appearance and sucking their environment. And I would imagine that even though his crimes were just, they seemed out of control, that it's entirely possible with Peter Stubbe that he was in control, that he was just horribly depraved and enjoyed 
doing those things. Although it's also possible that in those actions, in those moments that he that he did maybe just degenerate into a beast. It's, we don't know. Uh, elaborate on his capture. So when a wolf was, uh, this is the most popular account, although there are several accounts of the capture. Uh, when a wolf was seen attacking a little boy, several men went to his aid and captured the beast, according to another perspective on the case. The werewolf eluded his pursuers until they resorted to the use of bloodhounds contending a different version of the apprehension. Another account asserted that uh, they apprehended Stuber, chasing him from a considerable distance before he took off his belt and was transformed back into a man and easily captured. Final story insisted that Stuber transformation back from a wolf to a man had been observed on more than one occasion. One vantage point, as, so, as, as many believe that, 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 who, that maybe he was actually a practicing magician and did transform himself from man to beast or beast to man. Taking off his, his, his clothes in, in, you know, in the kind of physical transformation you know, into, a, into a wolf. Uh, it's possible also that, he, that that was part of his sort of ritual, that was part of gearing himself up for these crimes, that maybe he came to believe that that girdle had given him these powers. So, I mean, it's hard to say. I mean, I've heard some interesting stories from people who believe in occult rituals can have can there real things can happen? I'm not going to presume on that, um, but it, it's it's it, it it's interesting that that would that that would be the case. But you do see often in in accounts of this type of predatory killer that they transform, they are seen to transform by others. It, their visage transforms, even their smell. Like they go from seeming normal to suddenly their eyes are are hard and predatory suddenly their face is contorted or their voice changes they, they snap into from dr jekyll to mr hyde and maybe that was what was being described 1589 the defendants were charged with murder rape and cannibalism stubber his mistress and his daughter were tried as a pack the court believed stubber's daughter and mistress served as accomplices in these horrible crimes his mistress, Katrina, was believed to be a shapeshifter who was able to transform herself into other forms. Both women were implicated in the crimes by Stubber and each paid with, with their life. He was, he was killed in a very grisly. He was pulled off his legs in 10 places with a pair of red hot pincers. One source observes his legs and arms were broken with a wooden axe and then he was beheaded and burned, according to another version. He was stretched on a wheel, had 10 pieces of flesh ripped from his body with the pincers had his arms and legs severed with a hatchet and it was decapitated and then burned. It's, I mean, it's, uh, it's, it, it's hard. It's hard. I think for, for, for many uh, people today to, to understand how that could be in any way justified, even, even as, as, as depraved and horrible a criminal as he was. But of course the, the priorities of the time were very different. The, 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 in many ways that the, the goal of this type of, uh, spectacle was to install uh, terror and awe in the public awful when we think of that it, um and and i think also i've read that the breaking of his legs was in part to prevent him from uh if he turned back into a werewolf from conducting more violent attacks so there was a real belief among, uh, uh, you know among those who, who carried out the execution or at least ordered how it would be carried out that he was a true 
either werewolf or black magician. Uh, and, and, of course, and, and of course, they killed his mistress and daughter because anyone who can be connected to this has to go. We have to get rid of it all, of, of, of any trace of this. And if you said he implicated them, that also might suggest someone who is uh, taking a final bit of control and dooming his his family along with alongside himself. Now the the court implicated uh, them. Uh, probably oh, okay. some some you know extreme misogyny or, or but. Uh, uh, that was the norm for the time, as as we will discuss, and you know, in the future, it's it, it the, the, this is something that the the. Uh, the prosecuting authorities were, <clears throat> sorry, <laughs> coughing a bit. The prosecuting authorities were, if anything, more misogynistic than even some of these killers, and and <laughs> and, and, and and that's where you see the kind of the this the this, the the pathology we're describing. In some ways, you could you could indict at this time in you know in Germany in particular, you could indict the the authorities. Even more than some of these killers, um, you you know, there's something very, um, very morbid and spectacular about the crimes of a man like Peter Stoba. But when you look at the punishment, I think that also fulfilled a a prurient interest in some ways. On you know, accounts of public executions of the worst kind are often complete with people selling, you know, vendors selling fruit and you know, a kind of a uh, you know, invested, uh, you know, kind of, it, it's an entertainment as well as a, a, a ritual of um, state power and, and religious uh, purgation or punishment. But the thing is, is that you also, you think of the German word schadenfreude, you know, the, to take delight in the misfortune of someone else. And it's funny how society does that with people who, whose great crime was to do that. And, uh, you know, it's, it, it's at the time, I think people thought all you have to do is to scare people. But, you know, the thing about people like Peter Stubbe or Gil DeRay or most of these people, they're not going to be dissuaded by any public demonstration. I mean, a lot of what sets apart this type of person is that they don't have the ability to, to learn from bad experiences and correct. They, they don't touch the hot stove and learn from that. Um, it, you know, psychopaths in general, they don't anticipate pain. They don't learn from bad experiences. So even if they're intelligent, they're, they're, they'll keep on doing the same stupid stuff, the same destructive things. They'll get themselves caught. They'll get themselves killed. And we'll, we'll, when we look at throughout the series, we're going to see some people who are extraordinarily intelligent, um, you know, who, who got themselves, you know, convicted and sent up because they represent themselves in court or because they boasted about their crimes or something like that. Uh, I think with Peter Stubbe, we, he, uh, he kind of got himself caught, didn't he? Or, you know, like, you know, or, or was I getting himself, was it a, 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 an act, like kind of just happenstance? Well, you know, he, he again, he was, uh, you know, involved in the, in the, in the act at the time. So. Oh, so he was caught committing a crime. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I guess I mix him up with someone else, but that's, that's, that, I mean, there was no way he wasn't going to get convicted at that point. And, you know, in a lot of these cases, the guilt of these people is pretty clear because, you know, they, they were executed and then the crime stopped. 
Um, <laughs> you know, there's a there's a case I just want to mention because you know a guy named uh, who goes what was called the Demon Tailor of Chalon, who who very similar crimes to Duray, but he he lured children into his uh, into his shop and killed them and dressed up the bodies before doing things with the bodies. You know, don't want to get into. But he, he, you know, uh, you sort of wonder if that inspired the Sweeney Todd story. Um, you know, there's, a, you know, you, in general, you, you know, a lot of our stories, you can, you can go back to these particular events. He was tried and executed and the crime stopped. Um, so in some cases, even though they didn't, they had a, they did not necessarily have the level of, of um, police work that we have today. They, sometimes these people were guilty. We just don't know, you know, we don't know how much of truth there is in the legend, but, to, but you know, it is, it is true to the, to that, that um, some people become, either become monsters or are born that way. And as the centuries go on, we have more sophisticated or different framings of how, of, of, of how this is and why this is. I mean, I think in some cases it's, it, it, it's almost just, you know, that they're born that way. And in some cases you can point to very particular precipitating factors. And um, well, well, just on, just on that, the idea of them being born that way, there's also that case of Jean Grenier, who was a young, oh, yeah. young boy um, who uh, he, he had, uh, his father was, was itinerant and, um, and, there were young girls at the time that he went up to and declared himself that he was a wolf and lycanthropist and that he, he killed children. And there were many missing children at the time. Uh, the, the, the girl that he talked to was very uh, shocked by this, but when she went to her parents, they, you know, they didn't seem to think that there was a problem or that or this, this uh, child was being, truthful but when um, more children were missing uh, this key was eventually brought in and he declared that he was uh, a wolf and that his father was a wolf but uh, it was it was disproved that his father was a wolf and then you know this 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 mix between fantasy and, and reality the authorities declared that because he was so young that uh, you know he hadn't been taught in the Christian, education in christian art and they just they placed him in a in a in a convert and said that if he left he'd be killed by the authorities but that he was allowed to live so again you have the fantasy mixed with the uh, sort of empirical judicial process and then you have whether or not a young boy is a killer or you know was he born a killer or can you know education or socialization take that out out of him in this period as well, you know? Well, yeah, I mean, you, this is also evidence as a little bit of a development of, among the authorities in trying to discern what's going on in the case. Because in this case, I think you could, you could argue, we don't know for sure, but you could argue that this is not necessarily, this is actually not at all a case of someone being born that way, but a case of someone born in the complete absence of civilization and the authorities deciding that this is an opportunity to grant someone a way back from the reversion to the bestial to civilization because of their, by virtue of their age. And it's entirely possible that, that he could have been born just in a complete vacuum of any form of 
of uh, socializing education. And you see this sometimes in killers like uh, Fred West in the 20th century, British killer, who was basically raised to be who he became by his father, but he was also, you know, both born with personality problems and suffered severe brain damage. In the case of Jean Grenier, it at the very it may be that he was that he was that he was born with this with some terrible personality problems or deviancy, and that, but it seems to be from what we know that he that he was that he 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 uh, treated the proceedings differently. He was apparently more truthful. And apparently was able to live out his days at this monastery, which would suggest, it's not necessarily the case, but it would suggest that it's that he may have learned to moderate his impulses and may have come back from that. There are examples of, of people who were killers as children, who later, be, due to profound abuse or just growing up, sometimes neglect is worse than abuse in the development of, of, of you know, violent deviance, that it, that it could be that maybe he just hadn't been raised with any, you know, if you're raised feral, you're going to have to live like a wolf to some degree. If your father raises you to engage in, 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 in acts of cannibalism or bestiality or anything like that, or teaches you to rape, I mean, that's going to be something that you learn. But if you don't have, if you have a brain that can learn that can be brought, you know, on, at least under some level of control. Maybe he did continue to have those desires or, or whatever, but he lived out his days in the monastery. So to some degree, they were able to be controlled. It does suggest maybe that some people can do the process in, in reverse of, in, you know, not just going back from, you know, go, becoming a werewolf, but coming back, kind of like the legends where, someone is cursed to be a werewolf for a particular period of time, but then that curse is lifted. Um, at least according to the account, maybe he was able to, um, through socialization, to, uh, to, be, to control himself or be controlled. But if he would have been, if he would have had this runaway, uncontrollable desire, you think he would have at some point tried to escape or killed one of the other, killed someone on the premises and you know, there certainly are, are, are many, there's, there's a lot of sadists who found a haven in, 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 you know, in monasteries at the time, unfortunately. But uh, it sounds like he, 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 was ne he was never executed, but he lived at the monastery. Yeah, he, was, he, wasn't, he wasn't executed at the time. It, it's in some ways a little bit of a step forward for the time because they were able to, to consider the youth of Jean Grenier, consider his lack of education, um, and discerned that that perhaps uh, you know that the power of of socialization could be greater than the power of the devil. It's funny because in those times, you know, as Aldous Huxley described, one uh, inquisitor of the time is as 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 being an ordained minister of God, but having only having any interest in the devil because you know his whole life was just about fighting the devil. It's e it's easy to find the devil anywhere you look. I mean, look at how people talk about each other online all the time, but you know, it's harder to find uh, to find something positive about someone, particularly if they've done something like that. And uh, it's a credit, honestly, to the to the uh, religious and secular authorities of the time that they were able to see that. And uh, it's a fascinating story. Definitely, most definitely, yes. Uh... And obviously, there's also uh, Gilles uh, Grenier, you know, one of the notorious, um, most notorious French 
Yeah. Uh, serial killers, uh, uh, werewolf serial killers. At the time, a man uh, who lived in the French town of Dole, uh, you know, described as a, a small village uh, around the time of the 30,000 in- incidences of um, of werewolves in France at the time. The, the number of, of victims is only actually estimated at, at, at two or three. And again, like uh, P- Peter Struber, you have someone who was uh, part of the society. He had, um, he had two, two children, um, but uh, Grenier was a cannibal. Uh, there was numerous reports of Grenier uh, eating his victims. Grenier was thought to have made a deal with the devil an overt act of witchcraft, uh, you know, part of the werewolf hysteria at the time. Uh, Grenier strangled, ripped apart, and ate his victims. Strangulation was the specific means of murder. Some, some murders were com- committed while he was in werewolf form, but he was u- human doing other murders. In one case, he tried to kill a young boy without transforming to a werewolf. He, he, we might conclude this. Um, so Grenier's uh, lycanthropy... Uh, Sort of, he lived, uh, yeah. So, this is again uh, uh, an account that's quite uh, similar to, to Peter Struber. The murders occurred in the 16th century. Uh, they took place uh, between the 1560 and, and the 1570s. Uh, in October 1572, a series of crimes were also asserted. Yeah, he, he was also known for committing uh, property uh, crime in, in terms of the murders themselves um it, it was suspected of killing a 10 year old uh girl and took her body into the woods uh, he stripped the body and ate much of the flesh enjoying it so much they took some some home to his wife to eat eight days yeah. later he used another young girl near the meadowland of le pompey in the territory um on all saints day um she was re- reportedly rescued by country people the girl died of her injuries after being seized by Grenier's teeth. A 10-year-old boy was strangled two weeks after All Saints Day. The, the crime took place about a mile from Dole between uh, Men- Menotte and uh, Grisint. Uh, Grenier ate the victim's arms, legs, stomach. He also tore off a leg and took it uh, with him. Uh, and yeah, again, he was supposed to be, you know, the most notorious uh uh, French uh, werewolf at, at the time in, in the, the, the town of, 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 of Dole. Um, the final Grenier murder was committed on November the 8th, uh, 5, uh, 1573. Uh, the peasants uh, ret- returning for the village after work heard a child screaming and a wolf-like baying in the woods. They followed the sounds to a frightening sight, a terrified young girl trying to fend off what appeared to be a monstrous animal. Some accounts reported the male victim um, startled by the villagers, attacked, uh, managed managed to escape. Well, I, I think you know what's interesting because uh, I did read that uh, this was the Dole was one of the epicenters of of the kind of the the focus of trying to find werewolves. Most definitely, so it, was, it was a fulcrum of that, and so there was definitely a desire to to find, but. It, 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 it does appear that those crimes are pretty well authenticated. I, I, I think it may have been, I, as I said, I could be getting some of these mixed up. I think it may have been that he was one of the men who were who was wearing the, the fur of a wolf, uh, although 
it could simply be that he was behaving in the manner of a wolf. And it is certainly something that, that um, it's worth bringing up the issue of cannibalism because um, it is something that, that um, is postulated uh, in Sons of Canada, quoting, uh, quoting other sources, that, um, that it, during the Ice Age, um, humankind um, went from primarily vegetarian to carnivorous. And that this was something that our brain and our uh, uh, genes and our neural system wasn't really prepared for, and that this, according to some, changed us and made us more violent. That it printed, a, that it left an imprint, uh, uh, you know, on our genetics of of how we we um, we consume, uh, you know, uh, meat when we're desperate, uh, desperately hungry. How we do it together, or or sometimes alone. Um, and that desperation, born of extreme hunger, uh, in, in particularly in the northern climes, is in some ways you could you could say similar to the desperation of an insatiable lust. And um, in in general, when you look at the history of cannibalism among serial killers, it's not because they think that human flesh tastes good. It's not a culinary uh, uh, interest. Um, it's primarily that uh, not, although in, in that time it could be that that it was something that people got used to uh eating human flesh over time it has been documented um will cause uh terrible neurological problems itself um and in, in some places where it's still practiced it's very done very rarely like in papua new guinea but the the, the um the, the thing about it is is that it's 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 usually done the motivation on an individual level is usually done in order to preserve the sense of of having the victim as part of themselves incorporating them into their body and that this has this is similar in some ways to how victorious uh armies would eat the heart or eat the body of a, 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 of, of their defeated foe but in this case, it could be the, the object of one's uh, lust. Uh, but it's interesting also that he brings back some of the flesh to his wife. I mean, briefly mentioned this earlier, it's like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's, it, 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 there's something of the degenerated, uh, something normal taken to a degenerated level. It's strange. Where, uh, some people suspect the, the motive was that he didn't have enough food to feed his family. There's also that too. I mean, th this is a time when, when, when you know, famine is endemic. So you know that we. So so you can yeah, we can talk about psychology, and 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 you know, evolutionary uh, biology all we want. But if you're hungry enough, that and that is as as our ancestors were, they had to do what they did, and it imprints itself on our genes. But it, it they uh, often this is driven by necessity, and it's in so so that, that that's. So maybe it's maybe what happened was that uh, the, one of the other causes of werewolf type killings that is often mentioned is uh, disease. You know, perhaps by in, ingesting something that causes it, um, it's possible that that Garnier uh, and his wife had been eating human flesh for a while, and that this had caught you know had maybe caused uh, them to have some sort of illness. There are certain conditions. 
that cause a desire to 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 uh, physical conditions to to drink blood. So you know there there are different things, and it could have just been you know it, it is it is hard to imagine unless you've seen it firsthand that level of famine and poverty. But it it is real in some places, and and certainly. Um, you think of uh, all the money that Gilda Ray had. Uh, you know, a lot of people might not have had the ability to, to you know, to, to even get a a a, a wild animal. Yeah. Or- so yeah, <laughs> Jean Garnier, for for example, was a a feral child, as yeah. as you know, as you said. Um, Gil Garnier was a hermit, and uh, you know, and, and in in terms of seasonal alterations in weather and in terms of food production, someone like this would possibly have, have come into periods of extreme scarcity and, yeah. uh, and would have had to go back to a sort of atavistic state of seeking uh, food from, from other human beings, possibly. I, I think that's a, yeah, and I don't see uh, why that wouldn't be a potentially accurate um, assessment of, 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 of this case. So uh, the, the most is, uh, commonly accepted tale of Garnier's ap- apprehension involves on November the 5th, 1573, encounter with a little girl in the woods where some peasants uh, interrupted a cannibal act um, it, but could not prevent the murder of the child. Uh, the trial began with the reading of, of the indictment um, and he was tried at Dole. The precise trial schedule is unknown, but it is thought that the date was of late 1573, the trial was conducted on the jurisdiction of the Parlement of Franchier Comte. Uh, perhaps the most uh, persuasive trial testimony was the evidence extracted after the torture from Grenier and his wife. It had been emphasized in most accounts of the case of, that these confessions were corroborated in detail by numerous witnesses. In fact, they all were eyewitness confirmations of the detailed confessions. Granier attempted to mount a relatively unorthodox defense during the trial. He tried, tried to shift the blame for, of his crimes to the devil or demons. The court acknowledged Granier's demonic influences, but turned his defense against him. There is a belief among some observers that Granier was an innocent man. It is believed that the wolf predations were the real problem and produced the tangible evidence against the alleged werewolf. Uh, he was convicted of lycanthropy and witchcraft. The court held that Garnier had corrupted by the admitted devils or demonic influences in his life. The sentence was to be burned at the stake. Garnier was burned alive on January 18th, 1573. The execution was conducted by the Dole's mass executioner of high justice. Uh, his meager possessions were confiscated by the state and used to pay for the trial and execution expenses. You know, one of the reasons that people were burned at the stake back then, particularly the case with heretics, but also in some cases with those who were considered to be uh, partners with the devil and something like that, was because they were the authorities were afraid that people would uh, use their bones as as relics or to you know use them in, in some sort of occult ceremony themselves. So they wanted to just completely erase any trace of them of them from that. You know, and it is as I mentioned earlier. It is also a complicating factor that there were, there was considerable actual animal violence against people living in rural areas in France in particular. There's an example of, of wolves that were, uh, that rampaged through the, through, the, through the countryside and eventually attacked Paris and were lured 
uh, into, you know, the head wolf, the alpha, was lured into the town square and was killed by the, the, uh, the, the inhabitants of Paris, and it was an extremely large wolf. Um, and that doesn't happen much in the modern day. But in some places in the world, Siberia, you see packs of 100 large wolves led by a particularly big one, and they'll rampage around if there's nothing to stop them. And they are dangerous to people. So there's just like in some cases, some of there may have been some of these guys may have actually committed, uh, tried to commit black magic, or committed, or 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 or, or have done it. Uh, it. It is also true that you had actual large wolves, and it and it may be that many of these accounts, however complicated they are by extracted confessions under torture or hyperbolic coverage. Uh, and rumor, there may be some truth to all these different things. And, uh, and you know, when you also have people like Garnier who, who live out, who live an isolated life, in a sense, they can start to have more in common with animals. It's important that people have a connection to the, the, uh, the society they live in in order to maintain not just a, a, a you know, um, empathy and interest in other people, but, uh, but to, uh, to be part of a, a civilized social bargain where the atavistic impulses are sublimated into normal activity. I mean, if you live out in the woods and you're starving for years and, you know, and around and around you, all, the only the only creatures that can eat are wolves, like the feral child. You 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 would eventually become one with that environment. Yeah, most most definitely, and and yes, this is. So I think one can see that um, that the myths around uh, serial killing starting, you know, in the in the twentieth century or in the nineteenth century can only be dismissed. But also the way human beings have uh, reflected on, on these kind of ghastly crimes have been riven into fantasy and, and, our, and our fantasy life and attached to the world of werewolves and witches and and uh, you know and, and which were not necessarily wrong in a sense because they did get at a kind of atavistic reptilian animalistic past. But what was the way um, these kinds of things were seen in this period? And, and this is intrinsic to the discussion around uh, serial killing into the 1960s and, and, and into the 1970s. And in not only providing a, a history of serial killing, but a history of the perception of these kinds of killings, seeing that uh, many of the kind of characterizations in Gilles de Rey and Peter Stuber and uh, other killers uh, can be seen in the, in, the, in the murderers that people are much more uh, aware of and, uh, and understand people like Bundy, uh, Alcala and characters like that. Um, I think it, it is important to note that, 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 that there's a long and uh, storied uh, history in, in, in this area. The more things change, the more they stay the same. And, you know, it's all these stories. People are interested in serial killers, I think, in part because they seem such, they seem so in, in, on the surface incomprehensible, on the surface 
so sensationalistic and it's it's scary but also mesmerizing in the way of a car crash but it's also true that they are it's a story that is has consistent patterns where you know it's it's it doesn't it, it doesn't really change in the sense that human nature doesn't change but our relation to the environment and changes and so you have stories that are very much tell the story in a sense from a skewed perspective of their time like all these killers in France at this time in Germany it's very much of their time in how people understood them you know for for for, for both uh, good and old truth and and fiction but it is certainly not actually distinct from from any other period in essence it's just that it how, how we understand it and how the killers themselves conceive of them changes um but when you look at it historically uh, uh human nature is pretty constant even if it has gone through part you know even if our brains have changed even though our brains have developed the 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 story of serial killing tells the story of its time but it also is has some of the same markers Ted Bundy could have lived in the 1200s. Roddy Alcala could have traveled throughout the countryside. There are, you know, there are songs about people. There's a folk song, Reynard Dean, about a charming rogue, and it suggests that he takes people, women back to his castle and they're never seen again. You know, the, the, you know, there, there are um I it this is a this is a a, a story where, whose differences are more to do with the, the differences in time, but serial killers are actually, when we boil down to it, uh, you know, throughout history, they're they're essentially the same uh, type of creature, and the and you know they're always with us, um, and you know just like these legends, uh, they 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 get repackaged and told in different ways. You know, you know you have Garnier, you have you know the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you have you have different versions of the vampire and the werewolf throughout history, and you know, in the modern era, particularly after you know the post-war era, they they become we, we start to understand things very differently, and you see less people who think of themselves as wolves, less killers who who conceptualize themselves that way, and more who who, who do it a different way. But if you're going to look at these people, they're they are all kind of fit into a certain number of of uh, of, of consistent categories, and what changes is more the society around them rather than the actual uh, uh, psychopathology that, 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 that drives this. Uh, most definitely. It's the, it's the secularization of, of the, the human mind. But uh, even within the Middle Ages, you, you do see there is a tension between the clerical and uh, principal authorities from the monarch trying to nail down an, an empirical perspective on this and then the sort of the wood cuttings in in germany of wolves the the purveyance of this kind of uh, hysteria in 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 france but but slowly as in you know in, in other in other areas in other in other um, occupations and uh, practices uh, as, as opposed to serial killing there's a slow uh, secularization uh, you know a sucking away of the of the demonic, of the you know the the heavenly, as as affecting man's uh, decision making, and in into the 
18th and then especially in the 19th century in Germany and in Britain, there will be an attempt to really dig into the serial killer at that time with even with those assumptions linked into those societies to try to get at something more empirical, more closely fitting to the, the description of what happens to them psychologically, what is the core and, and, and atavistic origin of the serial, serial killer, what is the social awareness and association of the serial killer. But in some ways, the medieval perspective, in some ways, is it, truer. You know, it gets that feeling that these people are, are more feral, more animalistic, and, and are like us and separates them from, from us because anyone can be a product you know a product of divination anyone can become a witch anyone can be uh, tested in a way uh, you know the the, the the animals aren't can be uh, anthropomorphized they're they're not totally other human yeah. beings a part of the world uh, they're part they're in, interlinked into the animal world and part of a, of a mystical communion with the world that in some ways is truer and is re- more reflective of, of some other truths uh, as well. So I think it's, it's, it's really important that we, we burrowed into the history of serial, serial killing here. And, I think uh, that's entirely, entirely true. And I think that it remains, it's important in, in, our, in modernity, people can become, we can become convinced that we are somehow distinct from nature and abstracted from nature. And we are uh, less vulnerable than we are until something like COVID happens and that, that, that makes people realize how vulnerable they are. And similarly, I think there is something that, that while the more recent centuries do provide a great deal of illumination on these things, they also can obscure that, that how we are fundamentally a part of the natural world how we are fundamentally much in common with other animal species that we are that we we can't we are we cannot control nature that we and also and as you say i think that that the proper response to these types of these types of crimes to some degree is incomprehension and horror. I mean, the, the 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 word evil, which we think of, you know, it's a contested idea. People say it's a theological idea. It's not as much. It, it comes from a word basically similar word to the, to obscene. It's something meaning outside of our conception. And, and when we see things like this, in a certain way, it broadens our conception of of what we're capable of, and that's important to remember. And and also, it, it also zeroes in on 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 what is is um an acceptable and and what is is you know we we can be in in modernity we can be both precise and illuminating and yet miss the obvious and i think that the medieval conception of this too it's important to remember that the proof is in what in in what and how these people did these crimes It, it is profoundly monstrous and we all potentially have that in ourselves particularly if we're men and most of us, thankfully, will, will remain on the right side of the ledger when it comes to that. But, but it, it, is, it is important that, that you, know, you don't get lost in the, you know, in the details and forget that this is, 
fundamentally that these crimes are evidence of true monstrosity. Yeah, from for me, Toby, and from Simeon, goodbye, and look for the next episode of the Golden Age of Serial Murder as we we dive into into Germany and then into the into the nineteenth century as well. Shall we see you next time?